Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Kristen Neff received her PhD at UC Berkeley and is currently an associate professor in human development at the University of Texas at Austin. She is considered a pioneer in the field of self-compassion, which leads me to the title of her latest must-read book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. Kristen, welcome. Thank you, Jason. Happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. As I mentioned before the show, I'm surrounded by women. I I was raised by my mother and grandmother. I'm married. I have two young daughters. Our audience of My Buddy Green is mostly women. I am surrounded by women. And your book (laughs) is titled Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. So it is so great to have you here. You have a tremendous personal story. So can we start there about and talk about your journey and passion or, or calling, if you will, you've, you've developed for self-compassion. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I, mean, I certainly didn't come up with the idea, right? Um, I maybe was the first to scientifically study it, but this is really an ancient idea. I mean, it, it's compassion. And I learned about it actually when I learned Buddhist meditation. So it was my last year of graduate school at UC Berkeley back in the 90s. And basically my life was a mess. I had just gotten out of a divorce. It was a really messy divorce. I was feeling like self-doubt and some shame and just didn't really know where I was going. And I was also under a lot of stress. I knew I'd probably get my PhD, but after devoting six years of my life, there was absolutely no guarantee of a job. And it's like, oh my gosh, am I going to be able to pay the bills and pay back my loans? And so I, I was, I was a case. And so I learned that Buddhist meditation was good for stress. And I was at Berkeley. I went to UC Berkeley. And so literally just down the street from me was a meditation group, a sangha that, that taught in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh. And the very first night I went to the group, the woman talked about the importance of self-compassion. And Thich Nhat Hanh actually is one of the teachers that talks a lot about self-compassion. And I, I wasn't expecting it. I mean, I, I knew Buddhists were into mindfulness and I knew Buddhists were into compassion. So I was, wasn't surprised by that. It's like I'd never really considered self-compassion before. I never really realized that you could intentionally take the same kind, warm, supportive stance toward ourself that we more habitually do toward others. And so, you know, even before I figured out meditation and it was a slightly longer journey, actually the very first night I came home from that group, I just started being kinder to myself. I tried it out. I I tried intentionally speaking to myself with more warmth and support and and kindness. And I was just blown away by the immediate difference it made in my ability just to handle all the difficult feelings I was feeling and because of my ability to get through each day. And then so afterwards, I did did get a real job at, at UT Austin as a professor. And, you know, then I started to research it. And the research findings, at this point, I think there's over 3,500 studies, if not more, on self-compassion since that first one I published way back in 2003. (laughs) So the research has just exploded. But yeah, I think the reason, it it really is a calling. I feel like it's more important than I am in many ways, in, in the sense that this is why I'm here on this planet to, to spread the, I, I joke, my TED talk, I joke that I'm an evangelist, but it, it's kind of true because when I first started, the word self-compassion wasn't even in the common culture. People were really suspicious of it. It wasn't widely considered a good thing. 
And so I just, I, I, because I knew it was a good thing, not only from my personal practice, but also from my research, I've really just been motivated to try to let people know about self-compassion, to try to do high quality research that convince people this, is, this isn't this is like a new age flaky idea. This is backed by solid science. It, it really does. I mean, the research is just phenomenal in terms of the benefits it gives you. And then the last 10 years, I've been focused on teaching people how to be more self-compassionate. Like it's not enough to say this is a good thing. You know, how do we teach people to do it? And especially in a secular way. I mean, there, there are tried and true methods like compassion meditation found in, in the Buddhist tradition, but I wanted to find a way to teach it that was secular for people of all faiths or no faith or, you know, anyone that, that could learn this skill. And so, yeah, that's how I got where I am today. So you mentioned the research. So let's go there next. Talk about in your research, specifically for this book, what was most fascinating to you that you found? Because I go back to the why for someone listening, like, okay, self-compassion sounds good. I want more of that. But, right. you know, I think well, people always love hearing the science and the research of, well, if you actually can develop this practice, here's X, Y, and Z. So let's talk about some of what you found in your research. Yeah. So, um, well, I think there's a, there's a lot that's interesting about the research. One, which is kind of surprising is, um, Yes, self-compassion is linked to less anxiety, depression, stress, shame. In a way, you kind of expect that because compassion is, you know, compassion, the definition is the motivation to alleviate suffering. So when we relate to ourselves with compassion, we're motivated to help. We care for ourselves. We comfort ourselves. And so it's very powerful because when we don't care for ourselves, when we beat ourselves up or we just ignore our pain, what happens is we usually fall into states like depression or anxiety, or we get overwhelmed by the pain. And that's really the source of psychopathology. And so with compassion, when you treat yourself with kindness and warmth and support, you don't get so overwhelmed by that pain. It's kind of a, a type of emotional resilience or an emotion regulation technique, if you want to call it that, which prevents us from being overwhelmed by our pain. And that's why we see these reductions in negative states of mind. I suppose what's a little surprising is that it's equally strongly linked to positive states of mind, things like happiness, right? Things like hope, things like creativity, things like life satisfaction or finding meaning in life. Also physical well-being, right? And if, and if you look at why that's the case, it also makes sense, but it, it's not, it wasn't immediately intuitive to me because compassion, although it's aimed at suffering, right? Compassion, the word is only relevant in context of suffering, but it feels good. Right? It feels good to feel connected, to feel supported, to feel loved, to feel cared for. And that's why, I think that's why compassion is so special in a way, because it's a way of relating to suffering that's actually a positive emotion. So for instance, the reward centers of the brain are activated when we feel compassion. And, but it doesn't do it by like papering over. It's not like positive thinking, pretending the pain isn't there. It's by embracing it and caring about ourselves because it's so hard that these positive emotions are generated. So that, that was, there's other things as well, but that's one of the things I think that's so striking is the, the, the link to both the, the positive and the negative, both. And so this book is for women. So yes. we have to talk about the difference between men and yes. women when it comes to self-compassion. Yes. So that was another surprising thing about my work because, you know, compassion is part of the traditional female gender role. Compa women feel more comfortable with self-compassion than men do. So 85% of the people who come to my workshops, for instance, are typically women. 
so there there are gender differences in terms of compassion being a traditionally female thing and not so much a male thing. And yet women have less self-compassion than men do. And at first I thought, well, that's odd. But then I thought about it more deeply. So men, women have a lot more compassion for others than men do. The, the differences are rather large, actually. And they have they only have a little bit less self-compassion than men do, but it's, it's consistent. We found like in hundreds of studies, it's a very consistent finding. And that's because women are valued for being self-sacrificing, for being helpers, for like sacrificing their own needs for those they love. So, so for women, compassion means giving up something to be compassionate to others. And women feel less entitled to meet their own needs. Whereas men, they actually feel a little more entitled to meet their own needs because of gender roles. So, so that means that women, even though they're more compassionate to others, they're less compassionate to themselves. So, so the difference between how women treat themselves and others is starker than for men. So that's one interesting thing. But I think it's also th this fact that men are uncomfortable with compassion. That's also, first of all, it also harms men because what we know from self-compassion is it's an incredibly powerful coping and resilience tool. So just as an example, there's been a lot of research with combat veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and the huge problems with veterans, suicide rates, alcohol use because of just the incredible trauma they've experienced in war. And so those veterans who are more self-compassionate about the trauma they faced, they're less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome. They're less likely to turn to alcohol or drugs as a way to cope with their pain. They're, they're more able to function in, in daily life, right? They're less likely to contemplate suicide. And if you think about it, life's a battle, right? So when you go into battle, who do you, who's going to make you stronger inside your head? And if you're an ally, if you have your own back, it's like, I'm here for you, I care, how can I help? or if you're cutting yourself down, if you're shaming yourself. And so I think women in some ways, that kind of makes more sense to them because they know as part of our gender roles that yes, you can really strengthen someone by giving them compassion. They don't know it as much for themselves, but they kind of intuitively recognize the power of compassion. Whereas I think men, unfortunately, um, they've been socialized to think this is a weakness. And because of that, they're actually denying themselves access to this thing that I like to call it a superpower. It's, it's so powerful. It's like a superpower, right? And it's in our own back pocket. We have access to it at any moment, but we don't even know it's there. But then once you, once you start practicing it, you realize, oh, wow, this makes a huge difference. So you mentioned the practice of self-compassion. Yes. What, what are the fundamentals of self-compassion? Right. So, so part of the practice is linked to my definition of self-compassion. And by the way, not everyone defines it the same way, but I, I got in there early, so most people use this definition. So when I first decided I wanted to research self-compassion, there actually was almost nothing written on it. There's a few things here and there, but very little. And so I actually drew on the compassion literature to try to come up with my definition of self-compassion. And as I was reading, I mean, the most common thing is just concern with the alleviation of suffering, which I might call, which I ended up calling kindness, that warmth and kindness that, that we intuitively see as part of compassion. But I recognized, especially in reading some of the Buddhist writings, that mindfulness is actually essential to compassion and self-compassion. So in order to have compassion for ourselves or others, we need to be willing to open to pain. We need to acknowledge it. We need to validate it. And in order to do that, we need mindfulness, right? We need to be willing to be present with pain. If we shove it down, if we pretend it's not there, we can't be compassionate. 
similarly, especially with self-compassion, if we're like running away with the pain and the drama, like we're, we're fused with it, we, have, we don't have the perspective needed to step outside of ourselves and say, hey, you're having a hard time. How can I help? So I realized that mindfulness was actually essential to self-compassion. And then also really essential is a sense of connectedness, a sense of common humanity. So, and, and this is what's needed to differentiate self-compassion from self-pity, right? Self-pity is poor me, woe is me. It's actually not very healthy. Even You may care for yourself, but it's like a very self-focused stance. Self-compassion is life is difficult for everyone. And it remembers that, well, everyone's imperfect. Whoever said I was supposed to be perfect? We know that logically and yet emotionally, we start to believe that something has gone wrong when I fail. Like I'm not supposed to fail. I'm supposed to get it right. And when I don't get it right, something has gone wrong. And that creates a sense of isolation. And so these are the three main components of self-compassion, mindfulness, kindness, and common humanity. And so therefore the practice, like a very simple practice is something we call the self-compassion break. It's almost like a little recipe. You just, you bring in mindfulness. You become aware of the fact that you're struggling. You kind of validate your difficulty in the moment. You bring in common humanity. You remember, hey, I'm not alone. This is part of life. This is human. Me too. And, and then you bring in kindness to yourself, right? Saying something perhaps that you might say to a good friend you cared about. And so that practice, so we, we teach that it's called the self-compassion reg, but there's also actually a lot of research. They just have people write a little paragraph of mindfulness, a little paragraph of common humanity, and a little paragraph of words of kindness to themselves. And they're getting really remarkable effects of doing this. One study had people do this, write a letter with these three components once a day for seven days, and they found that depression was reduced for three months and happiness was increased for six months. Something as little as writing a little letter to yourself, right? And so it's what, what self-compassion is, is it's really a mind state. And so when it's, once you cultivate the mindset, it's not, it's actually not as like complicated as meditation. For instance, you just have to remember to be kind to yourself. Remember you aren't alone and try to be aware of what's happening. And once you cultivate that mind state, things immediately start to shift. So how do we know if we're good at self-compassion? How do we assess or rate ourselves? <laughs> well, I do have a self-compassion scale that actually, I mean, I think that's the reason there's so much research is um, because I published that back in 2003. It still seems to be holding up surprisingly, um, but you can actually go to my website, selfcompassion.org, and you can take the scale and it'll give you a score, including like the subcomponents of self-compassion. But a, a very a simpler way is just to ask yourself the question, how do I treat my good friends when they come to me and they're struggling or they're feeling badly about themselves? And then you ask the same question for yourself. How do I, what do I say to myself internally? Or how do I treat myself when I'm struggling or feeling badly, or maybe I've made a mistake or failed? And then just look at the difference. And that'll give you some, for some people, it's really eye-opening to see, wow, I, what I say to my friend, what I say to myself, I don't think they'd be my friend anymore if I said to them what I said to myself. So well, you the, call that, you call that lopsided caring. Well, it's right. related to lopsided caring. Yeah. But so lopsided caring is actually, it's based on research on what's called unmitigated communion, which is basically people who really give in a much more intense way to others and to themselves. Again, it's really a, a self-sacrificing 
approach to relationships where, and the problem with unmitigated communion, or I call it lopsided caring, is it's driven by, in many ways, by the desire for people to like us or approve of us. And it's a real problem for women because women, from the time we're very little, people like us and approve of us when we're helpful, when we're sweet, when we're nice, when we say yes. Right? This is how we get our validation in a way that boys don't receive quite the same way. Boys are allowed to just go out and achieve and do stuff, and that's a lot of how they get their validation. But girls, this idea of being a nice person, that people like you, because you say yes and you're helpful. I mean, there's good and bad to this, right? The good thing is, yeah, it's good to be good and helpful. I mean, it's not like there's, that's not valuable, but once it becomes in unbalanced with meeting your own needs and it starts to drain you saying yes to others and you aren't doing it like out of this intrinsic motivation, you aren't doing it purely out of the wellsprings of your own heart, you're doing it because you think you have to, to get people to like you or that you'll piss them off if you say no that's when it starts becoming a problem, right? And that's why, so that's why I talk about fierce and tender self-compassion. So tender self-compassion is kind of the nurturing, gentle, more accepting part of self-compassion. And again, it's very much part of the female gender role. But fierce self-compassion is the powerful action-oriented side of alleviating suffering, which is compassion. So anger, for instance, when anger is aimed at alleviating suffering, like standing up to injustice, that's a form of compassion. That's a form of self-compassion. And women are kind of cut off from this fear side. For instance, saying no to others because sometimes it's not the most compassionate thing to do to say yes if it's going to harm yourself or you don't have the resource. Sometimes you have to draw boundaries and say, I'd love to help you, but I'm sorry, I can't. I need to, I need to take care of myself. And unfortunately, because of gender role socialization, women sometimes have a hard time doing that. So, so the book is really designed to help women come more into balance. And by the way, if I were a man or if I had the time, I would have written a sibling book to this called Tender Self-Compassion, How Men Can Harness Kindness to like Open Their Hearts and Learn How to Deal with Their Negative Emotions in a Productive Way. <laughs> but you know, that's a slightly different book. For men, you have to go left. And for women, you got to go right. To, but everyone needs to get to that place of balanced integration. Well, I'm sure your team at HarperCollins will be talking about that with you. <laughs> Maybe after, you can write that book. I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. I have a lot to learn. So you mentioned anger. Yes. And look, anger is such an important emotion. It but, is. And there's, there's a lot of reasons for people to be angry. Um, yeah. But if it becomes all-consuming, if it overtakes you, it could become destructive, unhealthy. And so how do we work with our anger? and ultimately use it as a force for good. Yeah, so I, I really, I have a whole chapter on anger and I developed a few practices specifically to work with anger, partly because I struggle with anger. You know, it's funny, people are different. I'm actually a little more young than Yin. I'm a little more fierce and tender. I mean, I've got context, like with my son, that I'm more tender, but just the way I was born, my wiring, I, I tend to, reactive anger is something I've struggled with pretty much my whole life. And I would love to say that after 30 years of mindfulness and self-compassion practice, I don't suffer from it anymore, but it still comes up for me. I'm a, I'm a little better, but not as much as I would like. And it really wasn't until I started delving into fear, compassion and what it meant that I realized that this anger, this is my power source in many ways, right? 
So that, so I don't tend to have ruminative anger, which is where I don't like tend to hold a grudge. It doesn't consume me for a long time. I kind of like blow and then I'm over it. And then I'm really good at apologizing and saying, I'm so sorry. But nonetheless, it, it can be destructive. And so I've thought a lot about how to work with anger. And one of the things I realized is, especially for women, I mean, men are different. Men are liked when they're angry. People believe men more when they're angry. Being angry enhances a man's power and status. Women are considered crazy. She's considered less competent when she's angry. People really dislike angry women. And I don't know. I would. I think people dislike angry men too. Well, look at Brett Kavanaugh. It didn't harm him, did he? I mean, that's partly why I got to confirmed to the Supreme Court because he showed this righteous anger, and people thought, "Yeah, he's powerful. He's standing up for himself." Could you imagine if Christine Blasey Ford had been angry? I mean, she would would have been horrible for her. So it's there really are, and the research shows there's very clear gender differences in terms of how people react to male and female anger. Not saying that it can't be harmful for both, it can, but there are differences. Men don't face this extra layer of socialization and kind of ridicule for getting angry that women do. So for me, anyway, as a woman, I realized the first thing was I had to see my anger as a good thing, to really honor it, embrace it, to let it flow. I'm, not, I'm talking about let it flow internally. I'm not talking about exploding all over, all over other people. But actually in meditation, when I was angry, I'd actually sit and just feel the energy of the anger, feel the power of the anger. I talk about the Hindu goddess Kali, who's often a symbol of anger. And she's a female symbol, which is interesting. It's not a male that's this, the god of anger. It's the goddess of this angry energy. Because what she destroys is illusion right? Kali, the anger is harnessed to destroy illusion, the illusion of separation. And anger often is the reason we get angry. Not always. Sometimes we get angry for because our ego is threatened, and that's usually unhealthy anger. But when we get angry at injustice, or because someone's crossing our boundaries, or harming us in some way, in that case, anger is actually a force for good. And so I, I started, I looked at the research and the literature and just my own anger, and I think it's pretty, an easy way to differentiate constructive from destructive anger. Does it cause harm or does it prevent harm? Very simple litmus test, right? So if you explode all, all over someone, you're causing harm. And that's actually not in the service of compassion. But if you allow yourself to get angry and just say, no, this is a, the Black Lives Matter movement. That's a self-compassion movement. We aren't going to take it anymore. No. And there's a lot of anger there. But when it's most effective, it's when it's not hating other people, but it's just saying, hey, we are all human beings. It's appealing to our common humanity to say this injustice is causing harm. We need to stop it. Uh, right. And so again, so we, with yourself, if you're ruminating in anger, if you can't get over it, if you're lost in it, that's causing harm. But if you're accepting your anger and grateful for it, it can actually be very empowering. So for those working on their self-compassion practice. Yeah. What are some of the everyday common pitfalls we experience? Well, one of the things, one of the reasons it's not easy, I mean, you can, you might think, why aren't we naturally self-compassionate? There are a few reasons. Some are that there's a lot of myths about self-compassion that stand in the way. One is the myth that it's uh, selfish. Again, that hits women particularly hard. It's like, aren't I supposed to have compassion for other people? Isn't it self-focused to have self-compassion? Um, 
actually what happens with the research shows is the more self-compassion you have, the less self-focused you are, right? Shame and self-criticism, which is the opposite of self-compassion, are very self-focused. The more you can just include yourself in the circle of compassion, the less self-focused you are, because you again, remember you're seeing yourself as part of this larger human circle, as opposed to just focusing on yourself. You actually have more resources to give to others. And really importantly, you're less, less likely to burn out as you give to others. It's actually what allows you to sustain giving to others. So that's one myth. The number one block though, is uh, the belief that self-criticism is necessary for motivation. This is a huge pitfall. People really honestly believe that being hard on them, that they have to be hard on themselves in order to change, in order to be motivated, in order to reach their goals. And, and by the way, it's, it's not like self-criticism doesn't work at all. I mean, if people wouldn't do it, if it didn't have some use, right? But it works kind of the way corporal punishment does. Yeah, it'll get the child to obey. But the research shows very clearly there's a lot of negative downsides to harsh corporal punishment with kids. It'll get them to obey, but it's going to lead to all sorts of mental health problems like depression. It'll undermine their self-confidence. It may lead to like addiction. I mean, there's lots of negative consequences that aren't healthy. The same with self-criticism, right? So when we criticize ourselves, yeah, maybe we're so afraid of beating ourselves up that the next time we try a little harder, but first of all, we're going to develop performance anxiety going to be really anxious about success, which is going to make it harder for us to achieve because anxiety undermines performance. It's going to create fear of failure, right? We're going to be so fear, fearful of beating ourselves up that maybe I'll just give up or maybe I'll do something else. It leads to things like procrastination. It also leads to just physical health problems like high cortisol because we release cortisol when we beat ourselves up. And that leads to heart issues, for instance. So self-criticism is actually a more effective motivator than self-compassion uh, self, self, say self is a more effective motiv motivator than self-criticism because it's the motivation of care, right? We, we try to achieve not because we're inadequate as we are, but simply because we care about ourselves and want to reach our best. We want to do our best. And because of that, there's less anxiety about achieve, uh, uh, trying. We have less fear of failure. Okay, well, failure is part of the picture. Human beings fail. If I fail, it's okay. And what that does is it allows you to learn from failure, which is so important. You know, if you beat yourself up every time you fail, you actually can't learn from the failure. You're just too consumed with shame and self-blame. But when it's okay to fail, you can actually learn from the failure. So it fosters a growth mindset, learning goals, which means you're more likely to try again and to keep trying. But our culture doesn't tell us that. I don't know if it's our puritanical roots or what, but you, you don't get the message that self-compassion is a really good way to motivate yourself. It actually is a very effective way. And there's other pitfalls, but our culture doesn't help us in this quest. That's why I'm doing everything I can to change the culture. <laughs> so is it possible to have too much self-compassion? I don't think so. I mean, because if compassion is about the alleviation of suffering, right, which kind of means health and well-being and kind of implicit in the question, too much self-compassion is, well, that's harming you in some way, then can you be too healthy? I mean, so for instance, people often confuse self-compassion with self-indulgence, giving yourself pleasure. You know, like the first big New York Times article that came out about my work, and a lot of journalists do this, like, Give yourself a break. Be self-compassionate. And that always makes me cringe because sometimes to be self-compassionate, you need to give yourself a break. 
But sometimes to be self-compassionate, you need to kick yourself in the butt and do something, right? It just kind of depends on the circumstances. So if you're always giving yourself a break and like you stop trying or you become complacent or you're or doing something like maybe you're just, you, for instance, eating sugary foods because they make you feel better. It's like a little treat. I'm caring for myself. I'm eating this cupcake. It makes me feel good. But after a while, you do that so much, it actually starts to harm your health. That's not self-compassion anymore. So where I went in the extreme end, I thought to myself, huh, are narcissists inherently good at self-compassion? Or is that a whole different thing? So this is interesting. Okay, so we, there's not a lot of research on this. It would be really interesting to do more. But there has been research in some of the... When I first introduced self-compassion to the field of psychology, I had come off a two-year postdoc with a woman who did a lot of self-esteem research. And there are a lot of problems with self-esteem not so much having it in terms of judging yourself positively, but a lot of people get their self-esteem in unhealthy ways, like narcissism is a really unhealthy way to get high self-esteem. Narcissists, some people argue that deep down they have low self-esteem. Maybe, it's hard to know, but nonetheless, they certainly operate with very high self-esteem and they don't let anything come in that might prick that self-esteem. And so I, we did one study where we actually um, used a, the classic Rosenberg self-esteem measure and then my self-compassion measure, and we put them in a simultaneous regression equation <laughs> to predict narcissism. And believe it or not, so self-esteem explained all of the link with narcissism, self-compassion at a 0 .00 correlation with narcissism. And the journal editor said, not point, it must be like, one or something. No, no, it really is 0, 0.00. And so the reason it's not negative is because if you it was negative, you'd have to, you'd have to say that having low self-compassion meant you're more narcissistic than having self-compassion. So it's just completely orthogonal. Where self-esteem is pretty strongly correlated with narcissism, right? And so I think what's happening that that's why I don't like like calling it like self-love, for instance. I mean I think it is self-love in the more spiritual sense. But if you just think of self-love as like adoring yourself, well, narcissists love themselves in that way. But a narcissist can't say like, self-compassion allows you to see your flaws and your weaknesses. It makes you more open to saying, hey, I'm a human being, I'm flawed. I, they're more likely to recognize their weaknesses, to say they're sorry, to try to repair mistakes they've made. So it's, it's really the polar opposite of narcissism. So you brought up a self-love and I'll go to self-care and there's, there's the, the cliche in our world, the well-being world of, of self-care and it's legs in a bathtub with rose yes. petals. Yes. What's your take on that? Well, so first of all, self-care is a good thing. The research quite clearly shows that if you engage in more self-care, it's going to be good for you, like healthcare workers or teachers, you know, taking some time for yourself to rest and rejuvenate is healthy. The problem with self-care, though, so it's not so much a problem with it, but a limitation is, well, first of all, it takes time. And a lot of people don't have time for self-care. I mean, if you're like, if you're a healthcare worker in a quote COVID ward saying like, take a bubble bath with rose petals, good luck on that one. You know, they're barely trying to get enough sleep. So it takes time. Sometimes it takes money. Sometimes people don't have the resources for self-care. But the biggest limitation is that of self-care is that, I mean, it's more behavioral, right? So again, very not to discount it at all. Self-care is very important. But we really need emotional self-care. In other words, how do we relate 
to our experiences of emotional pain, of fear, of stress, of depression, of sadness, of grief, of trauma, right? In the moment that it's arising. So, so for instance, I teach a lot of self-compassion to healthcare workers. We actually developed a self-compassion training program for healthcare workers. And so like, when you're in that COVID ward and you're stressed and you're feeling overwhelmed, you can't like say, oh man, this is freaking me out. I have to take my bubble bath. See you later. Like, it, it doesn't help you on the job. It's like preparation for the job, but it doesn't help you in the moment when you're really stressed from being a caregiver, for instance, or, or if you're with your, in my case, my son who has autism. And when he was younger, self-compassion made sense such a huge difference. And it wasn't like that I had time to take bubble baths or do anything. But what I would do is in the moment when I was feeling overwhelmed by his tantrums or just feeling like this is just too much and just like I was going to burst, I would give myself kindness. And this is so hard, Kristen. I'm so sorry. I'm here for you. What can I do to help? I would just like be tender and, and warm and supportive toward myself. What it does is it allows you to hold difficult, painful emotions without being overwhelmed in the moment. And so that's why it's, again, they're related, but they aren't exactly the same thing. It's really a mindset. I I love that because self-compassion is a real time tool in the moment when you need it and you need it desperately. Whereas self-care is this thing where you got to schedule. That's right. Yeah. You don't have (laughs) to schedule. And and you don't even, and you maybe you need resources and you don't have the time to schedule it. And it's not helping you in that moment when you're just about to lose it. Yeah. And also if you practice self-care, but you're criticizing yourself the whole time you're in the bubble bath, that's also not going to (laughs) help. So we need both. It's not one or the other, but we need both. And people who are more self-compassionate practice more self-care because they care about themselves. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of balancing yin and yang? Yes. Yeah. So I, I use the metaphor throughout the book of yin and yang. It actually, I always say it wrong. I like. Well, yeah. I've been told by people that it's yang I, and not yang. I still can never pronounce tick not hot. I, I always, and I've read him. I know him. Like, I, yeah. I don't know him personally, but like, I, I, and I just can never get the name right. I know. So. So it's okay. You're forgiven. I did it for years until I was corrected and then I remembered. So the reason I like to use the yin and yang metaphors. Well, first of all, it maps on really closely to what I'm calling fierce and tender self-compassion. So yin is more the yielding, soft, accepting energy of life is what allows us to kind of be with what is. And yang is more the force, powerful kind of action-oriented energy of life. And from Chinese, from the philosophy of Chinese philosophy, the definition of the lack of health or well-being is an imbalance between yin and yang in many ways. And the reason I came on that metaphor was actually because I was talking, thinking about gender. Someone was saying, well, why don't you write about self-compassion from a woman's point of view and self-compassion from a man's point of view? And I really don't like calling these masculine and feminine because the whole problem is that we've taken these things and we made tenderness feminine and, and fierceness masculine. And then I thought, well, if we just call it yin and yang, that's really expressing these two principles without tying them to gender. Because one of my big theses is one of the big, the reasons the world's in the state it's in is because we've gendered yin and yang, right? We've allowed women to be yin and tender, but not fierce. And we've allowed men to be fierce and, but not tender. And that leads to this it's really unhealthy state of being. And it kind of, each one, you know, so, so fierceness, instead of being like powerful and courageous, it starts becoming just aggressive and destructive. 
and tenderness, instead of just being nurturing, it starts becoming like complacent and weak. And, this, and then you add the power dimension in there. It also undergirds hierarchy <laughs> because the young people have the power almost by definition and the people who are supposed to be in are by definition disempowered. And so it just, it just underlies a lot of the problems. And so, and that's why I think it's, it's important for both men and women to balance it, but the way they've got to re regain balance is a little bit different. And it's just a nice, it's a nice way to get away from calling it masculine and feminine, but it's right. traditionally yin's considered feminine and yang's considered masculine. We don't have to use those terms. <laughs> so, so you mentioned being complacent and I, and I love yeah. what you had to say about this in, in the book, you talk about the difference between acceptance versus complacence. And I, I yeah. love that. So yeah. let's unpack that. Yeah. Well, and that's, so you might say yin without yang is complacency, right? So, and again, if you look in the Buddhist teachings, so first of all, the term fierce compassion, I didn't come up with that term. That's what they talk about in, in Buddhism. I, I just, I, I, I just amended it to call it fierce self-compassion, but a lot of Buddhists have been talking for a long time about fierce compassion. In other words, um, as opposed to what's sometimes called idiot compassion, idiot compassion is when you're just accepting and you aren't fighting for social justice, for instance. You have to sometimes be very fierce to stand up to harm. All right, and remember, compassion is all about alleviating harm, alleviating suffering. And so one of the ways we alleviate suffering is by acceptance. We alleviate our own suffering by accepting the fact that we're imperfect human beings. It's okay. We don't need to be perfect. We're worthy of love. We can have compassion for others by accepting the fact that, yes, they're flawed human beings as well. They make mistakes. They aren't totally in control of their actions. So we can have compassion for them. That's at the level of like emotional acceptance, but at the level of behavior, kind of you might say that, the manifest plane in terms of like what we actually do. You know, one time they, at the stories they asked the Dalai Lama about, he was talking about compassion, but what do you do about pedophiles? And he says, what do you mean? What do you do? You throw them in jail and you throw away the key. You know, you have to, you have to take action to prevent harm at the behavioral level, even though you can still in your heart, accept the person who's caused harm, whether it's yourself or others as a human being worthy of care. And, and what we know is they, they aren't opposite. So Carl Rogers has a famous quote, the curious paradox is that the more I accept myself, the more I can change. So when the bottom line is unconditional acceptance at the level of being a human being worthy of love, then that actually empowers you to make changes to be healthier. It gives you the sense of safety needed to make changes. But again, and the imbalance the other way is also a problem. So if you look at the social justice movements, I mean, why were the social justice movements like led by Gandhi and Reverend Martin Luther King so, so powerful and effective? It's because they were compassion movements, right? They were fierce. They were really fierce. They were strong. They were powerful. But they didn't say that like white people or the British or, you know, anyone was, was, was evil. They didn't dehumanize anyone. They had that yin acceptance of all people. We're all here. We're all human beings. Everyone's worthy of care and compassion and understanding. And yet, big line in the sand, sand no, this can't continue. Uh, but when it's not that way, when the tenderness and people are dehumanized and it becomes aggressive, then it just it just leads to war and strife and it doesn't help anyone. So if we were to zoom out, what's the state of self-compassion 
today. Why this book for women and and why now? I I certainly have some ideas, but... Yeah, yeah. So, well, first of all, I mean, in terms of the state of self-compassion, it's a lot more in the common culture than it was 20 years ago when I started. So that's great to see. There's a lot more research. You you just start... People use the term. It's kind of entered the common... I don't know what you call it, but you know, it's kind of come into common usage. But why in particular this book now... It's For me, it's because of the Me Too movement. That's really what spurred me to write it. And there is a rising of female empowerment now, which is linked to the Me Too movement. For many years after the second wave feminism and things had gone after the Equal Rights Amendment movement and Ms. Magazine and all that stuff, feminism had gone kind of quiet. But there seems to be an arising of women of women's are, women are angry. There's a lot of woman, books out there about women's anger. The whole saying no to the sexual harassment, sexual abuse, sexual object, objectification, that they're really highlighting the fact that there's still not equal representation in politics or at the you know, at CEO level and that needs to change. So this was all in the air. And then personally, what had happened is I was I had a really horrible experience with someone. It didn't happen to me directly, but someone that I had supported, someone who ran an autism center, turned out to be like a mini Harvey Weinstein, was abusing these people and including one young woman who I had actually got into involved in the center. And it was, it was just, it was a horrific experience. It was a horrific experience. And I was mad as hell. I was so mad. But what struck me is that a lot of the women, especially this young woman who, was, who I was close to, the kind of the, lack, the, the inability of some of these women to access their anger. And I just, and I started realizing how problematic it is that, that for some women, because you've been so socialized not to get angry or not to rock the boat, or, hey, this person's doing such good in the world. I don't want to harm anyone. Like the destructive consequences of that. I just said, hey, I need, I need to, we need some fierce self-compassion here. I need to write a book, especially for my sister's dealing with things like sexual harassment and abuse, dealing with things like the, still the lack of parity in the workplace, dealing with the incredible, like look at the pandemic. It was women who stayed home largely. I mean, women were the ones largely harmed by the pandemic because they, they're, not only are they working, they also still do with the bulk of the childcare. And so when the children were home and not at school, that really harmed women. And I just really felt we needed this book to, again, claim our <laughs> claim our power. But the, the twist on it is it's claiming our power through something we already know, and that's how to be kind and compassionate to others. I, I, I call it, and throughout the book, I refer to our inner mama bear. By the way, I think men have mama bear too. Any parent has the mama bear energy, right? That you want to see someone ferocious, you attack someone's child. And that tremendous protective parental energy that comes up, it's kind of interesting that we call it mama bear, but not papa bear, huh? So in some ways, like Kali, it's actually a feminine energy, metaphorically at least. But we have access to that for others. And so I just thought, well, why not write a book that helped women tap into that power for themselves, but not only for themselves, also for social justice. I mean, if you look at why, another reason why now, well, there's been some criticism of like the mindfulness movement for being too self-focused. Yeah, it may be fine and well if you're stress-free and you're happy on your meditation cushion, but look at the world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? It's not enough just for in- in individual well-being. We need to change inequitable social systems. And again, I think that's where the fierce compassion comes in because it's action-oriented. It's about how do we make change not only internally but in the world so that we can alleviate suffering. And that's what social justice is all about. 
So you mentioned social justice. What about social media, specifically Instagram? Instagram uh, good for for self compassion. For, for <laughs> I just started a, an Instagram account. I, I put it off for years, so so it, maybe it's good for self compassion in that small way. But no, I mean it, it's true. Social media has really changed things, and I, I have to say, as a psychologist, we're way behind in fully understanding the impact of it. I think it's probably because a lot of the a lot of the researchers are a little bit behind the curve in terms of when social media became so popular, but there, there is starting to be research on it. Yeah, social media has, well, it's weird. It's not inherently bad. It can be used to connect people. It's, you know, it's, it does have that function of, in some ways, connecting people. But in many ways, what it does is it really heightens social comparison. Right? It's a it's, lot of yeah, exactly. Exactly. Specifically with Instagram. Specific, because people only post the pictures of their their perfect selves. And they, I have a friend, I mean, I love her to death, but she's in her 50s and like she puts this little filter on. It's like, that's not her. (laughs) She looks like she's 30. And everyone's putting filters on and it's not reality. And people are comparing themselves to unreal images and social comparison. Yeah. Yeah, That can't be good for, that can't be good for self compassion. No. Well, I think it's, yeah, it leads to people criticizing themselves. Exactly. Uh, It certainly doesn't help self-compassion. I think self-compassion, I think there's some research on this. Self-compassion can be used to deal with the stress of that and the social comparison. So self-compassion is kind of an antidote to (laughs) self-compassion. One of my favorite sayings is the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess, right? So with self-compassion, the goal is not to be perfect. Your goal isn't to like have it all together. Your goal is you can still be a mess, but the idea is, well, how do I relate to that mess? And then do it compassionately. And Instagram isn't, maybe that will change. Um, show a picture of yourself where you look as messy as possible. Yeah, so it, it does counteract it. I mean, again, I don't want to say it's an unmitigated evil. I think there are some good things that come out of it. I think, I think there's good and bad in social media. But sure. one of the downsides is the social comparison, which is why we need uh, self-compassion more than ever to counter that social comparison. So uh, if your self-esteem starts becoming contingent on those social comparisons, uh, it's really destructive. And self-compassion is like an unconditional, non-contingent self, self, self-worth, which means you don't need that to feel good about yourself. So... What's a non-negotiable for anyone listening who wants to get to work on developing their fierce self-compassion, other than they got to pick up the book, they pick up the book, but like non-negotiable for anyone listening to work on developing their fierce self-compassion starting right now? <laughs> What's non-negotiable? Well, I mean, I think you can't even begin the process without awareness. And that's why actually mindfulness, my three component model, is the first step of self-compassion. Because if you aren't aware, you can't even begin to start helping yourself. So the first thing is just to check in. How do you speak to yourself? Right? Are you supportive? Are you warm? Are you caring? Do you meet? Do you value your own needs? Are you saying yes all the time to others to the point where it's actually draining you? Are you doing it not because you really want to, but because you think you should? Are you standing up for yourself? Are you afraid of asserting yourself or drawing boundaries, right? What are are you doing what you'd like to be able to do to be happy? And that's really the place to start. And if the answer is yes, 
the, you don't need my book. You might want to read my book to help other people. But, you know, some people, especially those people lucky enough to have really supportive parents and all, everything went right. There are some people who are naturally high in self-compassion, but actually not the majority. The majority of people are actually much kinder and more compassionate to others than themselves. And it, and it really is, it's, it's more than just a psychological construct. It's really just a way of living your life. It's a, I like to say self-compassion isn't about getting it right. It's about opening your heart. Right? And, and we're with ourselves 24-7, <laughs> right? We're relating to our own thoughts, our own emotions, our own reactions constantly, even in our sleep. And so how we relate to what arises in our own consciousness, especially when what's arising is painful or difficult or fearful or scary or shameful, how we relate to that not only colors our own experience, but also colors how we relate to everyone else in our life. So, yeah. So the first step is starting just to become aware of what's arising for you. So... In closing, you've been a leader in this field for quite some time, and I'm curious, where's the research going? Where's the science going? Where, where do you think the conversation is going? What, what are we going to be talking about with regards to self-compassion a year or so from now? What's interesting to you? Yeah, well, so very, I mean, there's a lot of research that's still coming out about how it helped people with COVID. So that's kind of interesting. For instance, people with more self-compassion were less likely to use emotional eating as a way to deal with COVID stress. So that's kind of kind of cool. So one th one direction the research is going, which is exciting, is moving away just from correlational research, scores on my self-compassion scale with well-being outcomes, more and more to intervention research. We're seeing more and more self-compassion interventions. I've created several other people creating them so that more and more will be about not so much that self-compassion is a good thing, but what happens when you actually learn to be more self-compassionate? How do we do that? What are effective ways? So for instance, I developed a, a program for healthcare workers that doesn't involve meditation. My, my big program, Mindful Self-Compassion, does involve meditation. It's kind of the tried and true way to gain self-compassion. But what's fascinating to me is my research shows that it doesn't matter how you practice self-compassion, whether it's in meditation or whether it's just in the middle of your day, putting your hand on your heart and saying, I'm here for you, it's going to be okay. So that's interesting to me, because I, I think sometimes we over-rely on meditation. I love meditation. I'm a meditator, but it doesn't work for a lot of people. And so what are some other ways we can help people adopt this stance? For instance, there's a virtual reality study using virtual reality, where you create an avatar of yourself. It's kind of your self-compassion avatar. That's really interesting. Where is that going to go? I mean, I think we'll get more and more creative with how people can incorporate this. I think apps will, will be developed. And there's actually some apps out there already that help. So that'd be nice if we can, I mean, could you imagine, for instance, if social media had embedded in it little clues or ways or tools that would actually help you be self-compassionate? I mean, mm. Who knows what techno technology harness for good may actually be quite helpful. You could get little reminders on your phone. I mean, hey, give yourself a break. I don't know if it's going that way, perhaps, and that'd be really exciting. I hope so. I yeah. hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Well, Kristen, congrats on the book. Great read. Thank you so Thanks. much. Thanks. Thanks so much.